Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Will Restaurants Survive Edition. It's Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. On today's show, we will be joined by Toronto restaurant owner Jen Ag to talk about the fate of the food service industry in a global pandemic. And then we will be joined by Jody Rosen to talk about the really horrible and premature loss of the great songwriter Adam Schlesinger, who died last week of complications from COVID-19. And then finally, this week's Comfort Culture Specimen comes to us by way of Julia. It's the 1992 caper film Sneakers. It starred Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier. Joining me, of course, is Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, joining me from LA. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, who's the film critic of Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Jen Ag is the legendary Toronto restaurant and bar owner behind the Dearly Departed Black Hoof, Rum Corner, Grey Gardens, more recently Bar Vendetta, and Le Swan. She's also the author of the memoir, I Hear She's a Real Bitch. I should say I met Jen, first met her when I was doing a travel piece in Toronto. And uh, before we sat down face to face, I knew right away that she makes beautiful environments in which to dine, talk, hang, and be. They balance formality and informality really exquisitely. Um, and she knows how to build a restaurant um, either with money or without it, which lets you know that her design sense is impeccable. I do love her restaurants. I also love her. Jen, it is great to have you back on our show. That was so nice. What a bunch of nice things. I miss you so much. Yeah, I miss you too. Um, the occasion is a rough one, of course. Um, there have been pretty dire predictions about the fate of the restaurant business um, in the age of pandemic. I want to make absolutely clear that we're not talking about the gravest human toll here. There's no way to minimize it. There's going to be destroyed lives and careers by the millions, but the restaurant industry is suffering and we thought it was important to talk about it a little bit. So why don't you just discuss what's going on with you and your and your establishments? Yeah, I don't even know where to start. I mean, every day is just a new adventure in trying to slog through to cocktail hour, keeping all of the horrible thoughts in a tiny little box that I only open for a few minutes so that I don't lose my mind. Um, but basically we we shut down everything uh, before the government mandated us, us to because it felt like really the only choice and the moral choice. And we felt really good about doing it, even, even though it was a very difficult thing to do, because at the time we didn't know whether or not, you know, the government was going to step up and help servers who, if they go on EI in Canada anyway, really don't get enough money. I'm sure it's true in the States too. But the government did actually step up and do that. I'm going to be speaking so tangentially, it's going to get so annoying. Um, and then, and so we shut everything down and, and then realized, oh my God, like what's going to happen to all of our people stressed about that for many days. Weren't even really, we weren't even really thinking about the businesses at first. We were just thinking about the staff. And then as that got settled 
And we started to realize that this was going to be a long haul, which seemed obvious from the start. Like it would, I think it would have been quite naive to be like, yeah, yeah, this is all going to be over by June. Like that's, I, I'm thinking maybe October, maybe March of next year. Um, so now we're, now the big panic for us is rent and the government here is not stepping up and intervening and telling landlords that they have to, I, I would be happy with April free and 50% for the duration, even though that itself is going to be a hardship. They've made $40,000 that are uh, loans available, but that's just more debt. I mean, it's all very complicated. There's a lot more information and it's a different country, but I know that um, restaurants in America are struggling even more because their staff is not protected by a healthcare system. So I can't even imagine what's happening there. Right. And this this just makes plain how how much at the center of a highly complex, integrated, balletic network of transactions, suppliers, distributors, producers, you know, lies behind the plate that lands in front of you at a restaurant. And when the entire system collapses simultaneously, it's unclear how the economic hit is going to be distributed. Um, of course, if you were, if the Canadian government or, you know, God were to declare a rent holiday, it would alleviate your problem, but it would simply transfer it to, you know, up the pipeline or in other directions. It sort of feels as though we're going to need some gi- gigantic holiday. And well, it's a, a bank. Gigantic it's a bank reboot. problem, of course. Yeah. And that's where yeah. it needs to be. That's where it needs to start. And then the, the banks need to offer mortgage relief and the mortgage relief allows landlords yeah. to offer rent relief. I mean, it's obvious and I don't know why they're not doing it. Right. And then I, I just before I hand it over to my co-hosts, I mean, talk a little bit about, you know, restaurants occupy a very, very specific place in this in the psychology of the contemporary city. They're sort of where we stage our semi-public lives in cities. And as much as people I know are heartbroken by, um, you know, uh, the larger and more permanent damages that are being distributed unfairly throughout both the Canadian and the American economies. There's a really symbolic importance to all of these places that nourish, like they both nourish us in this primal way and gave us a sort of stage set in which to enact no small part of our lives. And you as an owner must know that restaurants play a role in the life of a city. That's not really a, a small one. And what's it like just to have them all disappear. Yeah, I've been I've been talking a lot about that on my social media channels about how we probably even people that are, you know, people that are in the industry realize how important these cultural hubs are and the community that exists within them. But people outside the restaurant industry, I'm not sure they they fully understand what their neighborhoods will look like when 50, 60% of the restaurants and probably the smaller independent restaurants, the cool restaurants aren't there. So I I think that it's really important to remind people, and it's not just restaurants, of course, I also mean hair salons and that clothing store that you pop into every month and that record shop and all of the places that work together to create the fabric of of a few blocks, you know? And it's, I I just, I, I don't know if people really understand the devastation that's going to happen if small business isn't bailed out. And I, I don't know the stats in the States, but it's 70% of our, our workforce here is small business. That's a big number. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's a Jane Jacobs nightmare. But uh, 
Jen, in thinking about this topic before talking to you, we read this long interview with David Chang, the famous restaurateur of Momofuku, etc. in the Times and part of what part of what he had to say had to do with delivery and how he has always seen the future of restaurants as moving toward delivery, but that he thought that would take a decade or more to happen and instead it seems to be happening overnight. And I'm wondering how you think about how delivery fits in as both a way temporarily to support restaurants and try to help them survive this crisis and also um, as a way that restaurants could survive in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I, I understand why people are doing it. I totally get it. It's not something we want to do because it's not what we do. It's not what our restaurants are. There's so much, and I, I, I talk a lot about this, about how the importance of vibe and how often people don't fully realize that they're not just going some, somewhere because they love the food. And that psychologically something is happening where they're being taken care of and the lighting is just right and the music has been chosen to make them feel good. And all of this stuff is happening around them that is a subtle cue to just relax and have a good time. And that's the, that to me is what makes a restaurant. And that is not what delivery is. So I admire when people can do delivery well. Um, we, we talked a bit about pivoting to it. Honestly, I don't know how safe I feel it, it is. And my husband's in his mid-60s. And so I, I, we're being extremely cautious. Um, yeah, for all sorts of reasons, we don't want to do it. But I, I just, I also think that that's not necessarily the future of restaurants. I really, I really hate that idea. And I, I, I'm, I can't imagine what could replace a place where you can go and get fed and have a glass of wine or a non-alcoholic cocktail or and sit down with your friends. I mean, I don't, that's something we've been doing for a long time in different ways. So I don't think I see that going away. Right. And there's also logistical challenges too. I mean, we, my husband and I, as New York refugees here in California had had a very takeout lifestyle for a while. And our New Year's resolution was to cook at home. And we successfully did it for January. And then we were like, hey, we like that. Let's do it for February. And now <laughs> we may do it for the rest of our days. They're a little bit sick of our own cooking. Um, but, uh, you know, we feel desperate to support the restaurants that are a huge part of why we've landed where we've landed in L.A. We're in a particular walkable corner of L.A., rare and joyous that is centered around this little hub that has a restaurant and a coffee shop and an ice cream place and a bookstore and a this and a that. And, um, you know, just trying to figure out how, like, there's no point in living here without those businesses. That's like why we live here. And so we're trying to figure out how to help them. But it's complicated. Like one of them has turned itself into a grocer, but we, you know, submitted an order form to get a bunch of food from them like five days ago and haven't heard back. And, you know, no knock on them, they're trying to figure it out, but it's not the same business. It's not actually what they were set up to do. And just the logistical complication of doing that, um, y- you know, is, is, is clearly profound. The other thing that I am curious about is sort of how, what kind of networks restaurateurs are using to lobby the governments. And I'm sure it's different in Canada than in the US. And, and there probably is a lot of lobbying already in place around minimum wages or food safety policies or, you know, to, to what degree is there an existing apparatus of restaurateurs relating to the government? And to what degree are people having to scramble up kind of new relationships and new alliances? Yeah, that's really interesting, especially for someone like me who's so hated. Um, so I think 
a lot of things have sprouted. Like there's, there's one in, in Canada called safe hospitality and that's brand new. There's, there are organizations that exist, but they're not known for, I mean, they're, they're more corporate, you know, they're not really known for uniting independent mm-hmm. restaurants. And that's, what's so interesting about the restaurant industry is that it's not really an industry. Everything is sort of independent within this umbrella. So there, as much as there's camaraderie it's not, I, I don't think we're necessarily used to operating as one voice. So, but there definitely are mm-hmm. people that are doing that. And, I, and in the, in the States too, I'm following, you know, uh, Hillary at Eater does a lot of coverage about this kind of exact thing. It's really good. Okay. Well, uh, Jen, I know you and I know you well, and I know your place in the firmament up in Toronto and Canada quite well. I know what you mean by your very funny joke that you're hated, but I'm afraid our listeners might not, they might misconstrue it. You're not hated. Well, I guess I mean, because I, I come across so charming on the radio, they're not going to to know what I'm talking about. Um, I, you know, I'm not hated. I am making a joke. I think I've been yelling about all sorts of stuff and injustices and bad shit and dirty shit and terrible men, hashtag not all men, in the restaurant industry for a long time. And finally, it started to feel like the world was catching up to me and and it was a really nice feeling, but at the same time, a lot of people in the industry probably didn't like that I was doing that kind of calling out, and particularly the kind of calling out which was like, why are you also not calling out people? So, mm. you know, you, I think that sort of sits with people in a way that they don't forget, and and it doesn't, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't care, but it's definitely a thing. And, yeah. and now with this... Um, you know, I'm definitely one of the louder voices in Canada and I have a social media following and people are paying attention to me. Big time people in the government all started following me on Twitter when this started happening. So I know I have their attention. And even though I'm not necessarily scared that I'm going to lose everything, although sometimes I do, I I feel that way, like that, like it's a possibility if, if the help doesn't come, like how much debt can we go into and I'm in a privileged position. I have all sorts of willpower to get through this. Um, and I'd be willing to go into more debt to get through this. So, But there's all sorts of other people who I don't think are in that position. And I, I'm doing this not just for me, but, but for them too. So I think I'm going to circle back, I promise. I think that at the end of the day, even people that might have mixed or less than mixed feelings about me probably somewhere appreciate that someone is doing the heavy lifting here. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, listen, like this is capitalism is nothing if not the maldistribution of pain and pleasure, right? And we're we're very lucky to be on the receiving end of a lot of its pleasure by going to, for example, your restaurants. I know you've been a very conscientious employer. I wonder if a massive reboot means there'll be some thinking about how pains and pleasures are distributed. Oh, because in, you in think people learn economy. lessons from things. I know. I'm sorry. I still <laughs> incorrigibly, I believe it. But I, I just got... don't. I'm such a cynic about this. You know, I keep having these conversations with people like, well, obviously this will push America left. And honestly, I don't know that that's true, <sighs> which is crazy. But do you think it's true? I guess I don't. I guess I hope it's true, but I'd be foolish to think it was. But Dana, I knew you wanted to jump in on this. In a way, yeah, I just, I mean, in one of my sessions of staying up till four trying to solve the world's problems alone, <laughs> which I'm sure we've all been going through, <laughs> I came across a really great idea being floated on Twitter. And I'm not sure if it was from someone from the restaurant industry or an economist or what. 
but but and it is does again seem like something that is very unlikely to happen at least in the US. I don't know about Canada, but this person was saying that really there's a simple solution to this problem which just has to do with the massive downward distribution of wealth via a wealth tax for a time essentially to float the entire economy, especially as you were saying, Jen, mortgage and rent, and just freeze it in place so that all of those things can continue to exist. So there's an economy at the other end. And what this person suggested essentially was that we, that the government pay restaurants to produce food to become essentially sort of, you know, food banks or food banks sounds like they're selling ingredients as Julia was talking about. And that to me doesn't seem to make sense. It's not what the restaurant was built to do. And so they're becoming a bad store instead of something that they could do well. (laughs) But if you turned restaurants at the government's expense into sort of food um, centers, you know, places that people could go and get pre-prepared meals for a reasonable price it would save all of these things at once. It would feed human beings and keep them alive and keep them from having to go to grocery stores and be exposed to a deadly virus. It would keep restaurants alive so that when this is all over, we still have an economy, which remember, an economy just means us, people exchanging goods and services and eating food that other people make, right? The economy is not separate from those experiences and actions. And it would keep our neighborhoods, as you say, Jen, alive so that when all this is over, we recognize where we live and we haven't just had the vultures of Starbucks and big box stores and, you know, huge chain restaurants come in and swoop into all of that real estate. Obviously, we don't have a leadership in America right now that cares whether that happens or not. And probably there are many people in leadership who would be very happy to see us all live in a vampiric world of box stores and chain restaurants. But it's not hard cognitively to figure out how to do this. It's just morally hard to get the people with all the money, which is our money in the first place, to give it back. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think that's exactly the kind of plan that makes sense. And I, I don't understand why it's not happening, except of course I understand why it's not happening. Jen Ag, I want to finish with two questions. The first is it's uh, 4 a.m. in the morning and you're solving the world's problems. Uh, where does your mind go? I just want the government to, to listen to me. <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah. That's really, I wonder what that would be like. I mean, I really, that's really what I want. I want them to understand um, how many people are sitting out there desperate, losing sleep, biting their nails tossing and turning, just waiting for an announcement that addresses this huge, huge thing. And it has not been addressed properly. So that's it. Okay. And Jen, here's my second question. I'd love to end on this note if it's appropriate. It's uh, 5 p.m. It's drink (laughs) o'clock and you're going to get through one more night of this. What are you mixing? Burgundy, baby. There you go. All right, Jen, I hope to see you soon. And I hope to see you on the far end of this in one of your beautiful restaurants. Me too. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Well, Adam Schlesinger died last week at the age of 52 of complications related to COVID-19. Almost certainly his music touched your life somewhere. He was the co-founder of the cheeky power pop band Fountains of Wayne 
Uh, but he was many things else as well. He was the quiet genius behind the indie darling uh, band that I quite love called Ivy. Their album Apartment Life is a masterpiece. He wrote songs for everyone from uh, Click Five to The Colbert Show to Sesame Street. He wrote 150 songs for the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, for which he was an executive producer. He won a Grammy. He won three Emmys. That's his resume. But um, Jody, he was more than a resume to you. You actually knew him. We're joined by Jody Rosen. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I knew him a very little bit because we lived in the same neighborhood in far west Chelsea uh, in Manhattan in the 90s. And honestly, uh, he, you know, I've met my fair share of celebrities in my life. Adam was not exactly a celebrity, which was part of what makes him so interesting. He's this guy who wrote all these incredible songs and people know his music, but he himself had a, had a kind of a low profile in public. But anyway, I, but I knew him from around the neighborhood. I interviewed him a couple of times over the years and he's a guy I would, you know, bump into quite a bit. We lived a few blocks away and I like, I kind of was in awe of this guy. Like he, he was, I think because he was roughly my age, a couple years older, he was like, you know, a Jewish guy, vaguely a New Yorker. He was from Montclair, New Jersey, which is not incidental to the work he made. Maybe we'll get into that, but he was, he, he, his songs were very New York songs. Anyway, he seemed like someone I could have been if I was like a million times more talented than I was. And I, 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 I love songs. I love songwriters. And he was kind of like the best songwriter who I had ever met personally. And, you know, cross paths with when he was pushing his stroller down the street or in the coffee shop. Uh, and he, and I can, I, I, I identified very strongly with the songs he wrote, as you said, for Ivy, especially that band, that, that album, Apartment Life was kind of like an anthemic album for me in my early thirties in New York. And of course the Fountains of Wayne song, which were so witty and funny and tuneful and really amazing. Um, so yeah, he, this, this death is a real tragedy. He died way too young, but he left behind a body of work, which really stands up, I think, to, some of the great songwriters, not just of his generation, but like, you know, of earlier generations, he's sort of, uh, maybe a Randy Newman type, but maybe a less dyspeptic ornery Randy Newman. He's maybe has something in common with a little bit of Paul Simon, but he also has something in common with Billy Joel and cheap trick. So he's, he's really an interesting figure. And, and his songbook is just packed with what to me sound like, immortal <laughs> classics right right listen before we go any further why don't you pick out a favorite and let's play it okay well maybe we'll start with some of this with the, the music he, he made for fountains of wayne this is a band that was that was that schlesinger co-founded in the mid-90s with a guy named chris collinwood another um singer songwriter they were college classmates at williams college um and uh this was as you said a power pop band you know the music was you had kind of Beatles chords and Beach Boys harmonies and loud, blaring guitars. Really fun, catchy music. But the subject matter, particularly in the songs that um, that Schlesinger wrote, um, these were very sharply drawn songs uh, about that told stories about characters, uh, some of which may have been Schlesinger himself, but a lot of were kind of types that he observed in and around the New York area. They had a distinctly kind of Generation X orientation. You kind of felt the 
downward mobility of people who came of age in the early 90s during the first Bush recession in the stories he told. Um, and there's a really beautiful song, like two and a half minutes long, called Hey Julie, which is off the third Fountains of Wayne album, Welcome Interstate Managers. It's about a kind of guy who's trapped in a, in a shitty office job. Uh, it's a, it's a love song about that guy's girlfriend or wife, but it's really paints a super vivid picture of what it's like to be an office drone. Really a great song. So maybe we can listen to Hey Julie. Working all day for a mean little man with a clip on tie and a rub on tan. He's got me running around the office like a dog around a track. But when I get back home, you're always there to rub my back. Hey, Julie, look what they're doing to me Trying to trip me up, trying to wear me down Julie, I swear it's so hard to bear it And I'd never make it through without you around No, I'd never make it through without you around Yeah, it's funny you started with that one as a, as a listening sample, Jody. That was the first song of theirs that came to mind when I heard that he had died. I, you know, the news that he was sick and was in the hospital with COVID had been going around. And then there was this rumor that he was on a ventilator, which turned out not to be true, right? Or that he was in a coma and that turned out not to be true. And so there was this kind of resurgence of hope, like he's going to beat this. He's a healthy guy. He's not that old. And so hearing a couple of days later that he had not made it was just like this slow motion tragedy to witness. And it was awful. And uh, and the first Fountains of Wayne song that came to my head was, was Hey Julie, which I agree is just this masterpiece. I mean, among other things, it's so short. I just love a song that gets so much done in such a short period of time. It's less than three minutes long. I think it's like two and a half minutes. And as you say, it's this it's this beautiful love song and it's really catchy, but it's also this just little thumbnail sketch of this life of being a wage slave, right? An office drone. It reminds me a little bit of the XTC song, Earn Enough for Us, which is the same kind of idea. You know, this, this um, the, the domestic space is this one place of happiness, you know, and outside in the workspace, everything is kind of alienation and bleakness. And it's a lot to pack into a two and a half minute power pop song, but that song just does it so wonderfully. And so that was the song I ran and posted to Twitter as a, as a, as a tribute to Adam Schlesinger. But I also wanted to just note, Jody, and I don't want to get sappy talking about this, but part of the reason I'm a Fountains of Wayne fan and that this affected me so strongly is you, because we saw the movie Music and Lyrics together, which is, a, I believe, 2007 movie, right? Yeah. With, um, with Drew Barrymore and Hugh Grant. It's a romantic comedy. And it's a wonderful romantic comedy and really essentially what makes it a wonderful romantic comedy is the songs. It's about this, these two songwriters, you know, a singer and a songwriter trying to come up with a song together and have, have meeting all these obstacles along the way and falling in love in the end. And so as with that thing you do, which is this, the song that he was nominated for an Oscar for, right? Did he win it? I can't remember he did, the soundtrack no. for that thing you do. Um, that, as as in that thing you do, the movie itself is about a pop song and about the success of a pop song as it's being crafted, or in the case of that thing you do, as it's becoming a hit. So those movies hinge completely on that pop song being memorable and beautiful and as wonderful as the characters in the movie need it to be to, to drive the plot, right? And if you think of all the movies about artists that aren't able to make art, <laughs> fake art, that's that's good enough that you would sort of believe that it would make that artist's career, it's just, it's a really rare gem-like thing to have movies about pop craft that have a very high level of pop craft. So I remember seeing that movie with you and taping a spoiler special for Slate on the movie and as a result of our conversation about 
the songwriting in that movie, becoming a Fountains of Wayne fan. And the first album that I got and started listening to was Welcome Interstate Managers, the one you just mentioned that, that Hey Julie comes from. So thank you for, for giving me that. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's actually, that's a great song to pick out. I love that song. To me, that is like a, that's like a, a power ballad for the ages, you know? It's, and it's such a, it's such a, um, you know, he, he had an insane facility with melodies, okay? He could just like, you know, write hooks upon hooks, but he is is also there's 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 a fair number of people who can do that but but aren't you know literateurs but he really was he's just got a great way with the with the english language and with you know vernacular speech um and like that's an example of a of a song that's written in a really spare pop song kind of style you know what i mean it's like the, the words are perfect and the images are surprising and original you know i you know, his writing there is really kind of spare and restrained. He's, he's like, he's sketching a scene, like the bare outlines of a scene very beautifully in the way that like a great pop song can, you know, evoke feelings with relatively um, sparse scenery and, you know, uh, just, a, just a few images. Um, and if you compare that to the songs he wrote for Fountains of Wayne, for example, those are very, you know, those canvases are filled in with all kinds of details. And the stories he tells in the voices of characters or narrating the stories of characters are, um, are quite sharply detailed, right? So you've got, um, uh, like, there's, you know, any of numbers of them that, that, um, jump to mind, but like there's there's a great song called New Routine, which is a, kind of an amazing song about travel and people wanting to change their lives that does this insane like Finnegan's Wake <laughs> circle around to the beginning after after globe trotting. Um, but like you know, the, it starts with these two old men who he says look like look a, quite a bit like Carl Reiner, I think is the line. You know, two old Jewish men like in a diner eating bagels kibitzing <laughs> and that's like just it, rhyming reiner and diner i yeah. love it already you know and that is that that's that's really that's honestly one of the most amazing lyrics in that song that i've ever heard you got you got to check it out but like there's another song called yolanda hayes which is one of my favorites and that's a song about a a kind of imperious like you know a grumpy uh, desk attendant at the at the DMV, and the narrator of the song is a guy who's waiting in line, and he kind of develops a crush on this DMV attendant, having not spoken a word to her. And there's a great kind of denouement to that song. He writes about, you know, songs about commuters. He writes, of course, his most famous song or Fountains of Wayne biggest hit is that song Stacy's Mom, which is about a kind of like you know, a horn dog teenager lusting after his friend's mother, kind of a one of their lesser songs to my ear, but a lot so much fun, like all their music. Yeah, you know, another one that's like that's that's so funny and amazing and may is is a song called um called Richie and Ruben, which is about these kind of hipster entrepreneur guys who are always trying to start businesses and failing, like trying to start hipster businesses, like opening bars and boutiques and going belly up. And the narrator of the song is a guy who's clearly loaned them some money over the years and lost all his money. And that that's like a, just another example of his, his, his great storytelling skills. Maybe we could listen to that one.
jody i'll remember the exact moment that i became aware of um uh, uh adam schlesinger and fountains of or, or came became aware of him as a songwriter and that i might care about fountains of wayne who i it just didn't it didn't nothing I knew about them second or third hand attracted me to their music until we had this conversation. You've, I'm sure you've forgotten it. It was you, me and a, a very, very, very penetratingly smart older critic. We're talking about fountains of Wayne. And I said, ah, I just don't, you know, I just can't, I can't interest myself in it. And this, this, I think you or this person turned to me and said, well, you know, okay. So Northern New Jersey, New Jersey, you think Springsteen, Okay, so what's Bruce Springsteen's music about? And I said, well, I think it's about being trapped in a stiflingly small community, but finding some transcendent way out of it via love or automobile. And even if you are remain trapped, there's still a you know a ballet out in the alley. What is the what is the what is the line? There's a opera out on the turnpike, a ballet being fought out in the alley. And then this critic said, well, I just have a question for you. Is is there actually an opera out on the turnpike? And I was like, no, no, of course not. He says, is there actually a ballet being fought out in the alley? I said, not, not even close. And he said, okay, so what is Nor- what is Northern New Jersey actually about? And I said, it was sitting in absolutely standstill traffic on I-95, you know, surrounded by belching smokestacks and a horrible sulfurous smell and the feeling that all of humanity, you know, the entire entire thrust of human history has been uh, uh you know aimed at making you feel utterly belittled in that moment and he said that's what fountains of wayne is a genius at poeticizing and you know what that really that really is true there's pop music or rock music certainly up to that point probably had even because because you, you compare it to you know not compare it by way of contrast you say grunge had taken this new way, supposedly new way, of taking loserdom and once again bombasting it up to grandiose proportions. And that's kind of what he refused to do. He found poetry in the places where one actually has to try to find poetry in modern American life. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. I totally agree with our mutual friend who said that. Should we just say who that is? Because yes. I think it's revealing. <laughs> so so that, that that's Adam Gopnik who said that. Um, and, and it's interesting that, that, you know, Adam Schlesinger reaches Adam Gopnik. It's not exactly where you would go first, but, uh, but it speaks to, I think, like, you know, the, the, the fact, first of all, it speaks to the discerning intelligence of Adam Gopnik, but also the fact that like, you know, the, the, these songs are really, um, they're just really great songs and they, and they cross lines of generations, you know, like I know a lot of older people who like Adam Schlesinger's music. I know a lot of younger people who li- like Adam Schlesinger's music. In fact, Adam Gopnik and his then 13 year old son and I went to a Fountains of Wayne concert oh, that's together awesome. some, some years ago. Um, but, but, but since you mentioned Springsteen, I think that's like a salient um, path we can go down for a second here. You know, Adam Schlesinger, Founds of Wayne, have a, a, a great car song, which is like stands in stark contrast to Springsteen's. Not that I don't love Springsteen or his car songs, but like he, his car song is this song called 92 Subaru. And instead of it being about like, you know, the, those Hemi powered drones screamed out and screamed down the boulevard, <laughs> here's the opening couplet of the song, which is like, talk about sketching a world in the quick of two lines. It goes, I bought a car off a couple of ladies way upstate took off the Greenpeace sticker in, this, in the New Hampshire plates. Okay, so what do you got there? First of all, <laughs> there's actually been scholarship showing that, that, um, that lesbians are owned Subarus in disproportionate numbers. In fact, Subaru marketed 
two les- they were they became aware that lesbians were buying their cars um, in greater numbers than other demographics, and they and they subtly market it to market it to the lesbian community. So you have that like. A true fact of, you know, you know, it's something that exists in a phenomenon that exists in the world that I'm positive has not previously been immortalized in song right there in the opening line. Took off the Greenpeace sticker in the New Hampshire place. Well, there you go. I mean, we all know, we've all seen that 92 Subaru, right? So the dude who like, you know, probably for 950 bucks bought, buys this jalopy, uh, <laughs> gets it in that way. Anyway, that that's just like, to me, that is another example of the kind of, you know, his, his skill as a social chronicler and how much of the real world he kind of shoehorned into these songs, which also are just super catchy and you can sing along without even really noticing what the lyrics are, if you care to. Uh, I mean, I got to just really quickly, Dana, before we maybe turn to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend before we go, I have a lyric from another great car song he wrote called I-95. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hip-hop stations are fading in and out. All I'm receiving now is a kick drum mixed with static. Constellations are blinking in the sky. The road is open wide. It feels so cinematic. And then it deflates till a van driven by an elder gentleman cuts right in front of me. From then on, that's all I'll see. The guy just was incredible. But um, I loved what I saw of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And it is a show I'm going to watch in its entirety in the next few years without fail. But I haven't done it yet. But Dana, I know you were quite into the music and quite taken with that show. Yeah, I wish we had Julia for this segment right now. I mean, for many reasons. I know she has lots to say about this band, but she was also a, a, I think, completest watcher of that show. Whereas I don't think I ever watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend after we watched some to talk about it here. But I listen to the songs almost every week because of my daughter, a musical theater aficionado, who I'm sure has no idea who Adam Schlesinger is, but already knows a bunch of his songs by heart because she would just find YouTube clips of the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend songs and we'd watch them together. They were inevitably hilarious and beautifully staged and weird. And they were, and this maybe, Jody, is something you can speak to even if you weren't a watcher of the show. They were a real demonstration of Schlesinger's talent as a pastiche artist because he could do any form of music and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was all about, you know, finding new new forms to send up. Uh, the one that we often sing together is, <laughs> is this song about yoga from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and the idea is that you're doing a yoga class and that there's a competitive rival who's showing off how much better they are than you. And so every time my daughter and I sense that there's some sort of competitive yoga or any sort of competitive exercising going on, we'll sing this song that goes, look at me, look at me. I'm so good at yoga. (laughs) Sounds like a Bollywood song. It's so brilliant. I do stuff with my body that no human should be able to do. Like putting my face behind my knees, turning my hand into a shoe. At the morning sun, kisses the lotus, I kiss my own hoo-ha. Can you do that? Greet each day, namaste. Screw you, you're fat. Look at me, look at me. I'm so good at yoga. Yeah, I mean, the, the, fa- the fact is I have to catch up with the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend stuff. I kind of didn't tune into that stuff just because I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV somehow, which is weird, given that we're in whatever stage we are of the golden <laughs> TV. But, but, um, but I can speak to his, his range maybe in a different way, which is talking about Ivy. So Ivy was this the band he actually formed first before Fountains of Wayne he, in a little earlier in the 90s. Um, and this was a trio um, that included 
Adam Schlesinger and his friends Andy Chase and a woman named Dominique Durand, who was the lead singer of the band. Dominique Durand was from Paris. Andy Chase and Dominique Durand got married after Adam and Andy put a you know, an ad in like the voice or something saying we need a singer and they got this chanteuse and she became, you know, the, the sound, the voice of the band singing these songs that were co-written mostly by, by Chase and Schlesinger. But the best ones to my mind were the Schlesinger ones and they're, they're instantly identifiable as Schlesinger ones. But again, it speaks to his range because what Ivy was all about was this kind of, um, they were an urbane band. The Fountains of Wayne were like the sound of like bridge and, the bridge and tunnels suburbs in New York city. Ivy was a, like a cosmopolitan New York band singing songs, kind of, um, moody, uh, uh, somewhat dark, very stark and, um, short and sweet songs about, um, life in New York for kind of 30 somethings and the styles that he, um, that the songs like utilized were, you know, like bossa nova and kind of Euro pop and jazz ballads. And yeah, you know, there, there was kind of like an Anglophile thing going on there. So, you know, if you, if you're into the go-betweens, for instance, you, um, I, I guess they're, they're, not, they're Australian, but anyway, uh, you know, you know, you'll, you'll like Ivy and this, this, the, those songs, again, the lyrics are much different than Fountains of Wayne, not, not full of tons of details, but just enough, like the telling details and they hit you very hard emotionally. Um, and uh, and there's this this song called I've Got a Feeling, which is like to me my that's my number one favorite Adam Schlesinger song of all time. Is just one of these like bone simple, perfect marriages of words and music. It's just like a perfect love song. It's not exactly a love song. It's a song of like longing about a young person who's wanting to meet their partner and fall in love. And this song super resonated for me at the time that I was living a couple blocks away from everybody in that band and seeing them all the time, because this was kind of my anthem. Cause I like was like sick of the dating scene and I wanted to like, you know, meet a girl and fall in love. And anyway, this, this, this song still like hits me and gets me where it counts every time. This person has left us way too soon and yet left a remarkable body of work. Uh, And from that, let's maybe each choose a song that we'd love our listeners to acquaint themselves with. Dana, why don't we start with you? Okay, I could go down so many roads, but I guess I'll stick with the album that I know the best and the first album of theirs that I loved, again, because of you, Jody. Uh, Welcome Interstate Managers from 2003, I think the album was. And uh, the song is about something I know nothing about, football, but I love it so much. It's called All Kinds of Time. And it was circulating a lot on the internet last week after the news of his death broke because in a strange way, it's a sort of a prescient song. It's just a kind of frozen moment in time of a football player who's about to throw a pass. And the chorus goes... He's got all kinds of time. He's got all kinds of time, all kinds of time. He's got all kinds of time. You have to hear it because it's also incredibly catchy as Fountains of Wayne songs tend to be, but uh, it's, it's really reflective and melancholic. And uh, I really recommend the whole album actually, but that song and, uh, and Hey Julie, especially. Great choice that I actually, in the, in the, you know, appreciation I wrote about Schlesinger after he died, I, I singled out that one. I think that's, that's a 
you know, it's an understandably was circulating this time because it's really about, it's like a metaphysical song. And, and there are like intimations of mortality amid like this song that's really, that's about football. And you, but one thing to note is that, that the, the, the title phrase, all kinds of time, Steve will know this. This is like a cliche that play by play announcers used for years and years to describe the moment when the quarterback drops back and he's like well protected by the linemen. So he has, he has all kinds of time. He can look, he can survey the field and like, you know, wait to deliver his pass. And like, there again, there again, Schlesinger like put it in a song and not only just put it in a song, but like made it about something so much bigger and grander than just the quarterback <laughs> about the throw pass. So awesome choice. Right. And did that so successfully that not getting that reference at all, I still adore the song. Right. Um, I think I would pick, I mean, I-95 I just think is a great song. I love Ivy. Ivy is, you know, it's such a different mode to have a French, you know, chanteuse vocalist a la Stereo Lab. You know, um, to be writing for that voice is just, just remarkable that he could do it. Um, I love the song Never Do That Again. It's the one that two or three songs, three, four songs into the record really hooks me on the record. And then for the rest of the way through, it's just a flawless uh, pop album. So I'd pick those two, I guess. That's awesome. Great choice. Again, um, uh, yeah, I guess, I, I guess I'll go with um, like one of his super funny songs. Um, I think it's from the album Traffic and Weather. Um, and it's a song called Strapped for Cash, which is, it's, it's, it's like a little, like, almost like a seedy Tarantino movie. It's about a guy who's trying to, like, dodge his creditors, as it were. But in this case, the suggestion is that there are loan sharks or whatever. <laughs> but it's just, it's like, uh, great, great music, a perfect little short story, tons of jokes, a little wink at, at um, Billy Joel's moving out in the final verse. Lots of Schlesinger songs were full of like, you know, references and allusions to other pop songs. So yeah, strap for cash. Check that one out. Before we close, Steve, I just wanted to note that Julia couldn't join us for this segment. She had a scheduling conflict and was very sad to drop out, but she talks about uh, one of her favorite Adam Schlesinger songs, which comes from a completely different register of songwriting in endorsements. So if you want to hear Julia on Adam, stick around for that. All right. Well, Jody, as always, it's great to have you back on the show. I'm really sorry for your loss and our collective loss. Um, uh, but it was it was lovely to remember this person and this songwriter. I should say, Jody, that you're a contributing writer to the New York Times magazine. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend. Hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, well, let's dig right in. Sneakers, as I said, it's a 1992 comedy. Uh, caper 
flick. It starred Robert Redford as Martin Bishop, if that is your real name. He's the leader of a crafty band of misfits, <laughs> security specialists. They're uh, penetration specialists, I should say, whose job it is to try to break into your house, bank, museum, whatever, to evaluate just how good your security really is. It's a fun and sinuous screenplay featuring a black box code-breaking device a murdered mathematician and Martin's past, both romantic and otherwise. It's an insane cast. It has to be said, whatever else is true about this film, you, you've got Redford and Poitiers, these lions of old Hollywood, joined by Dan Aykroyd, David Stratham, River Phoenix, and Ben Kingsley, and Mary McDonnell. It's, it's a fun one. Let's listen to a clip. Oh, my gosh. How is this possible? Cryptography systems are based on mathematical problems so complex they cannot be solved without a key. Janik must have figured out a way to solve those problems without the key, and he hardwired it into that chip. Anybody want to crash a couple of passenger jets? I said turn it off. Turn it off! So it's a code breaker? No. It's the code breaker. No more secrets. All right, Julia. So on this movie's 20th anniversary, which if my math is correct, was uh, around about eight years ago, you and John Swansburg did a, I think something of a dialogue on Slate about your love for this movie in which you wrote, I don't think I've ever loved a movie as much as I loved sneakers. Is that a, a consequence of the fact that you were, whatever, six or eight years old when you saw it? Or uh, how did it hold up? <laughs> no, I was like a full-on 17 or something, I think. Um, this is still my all-time go-to favorite movie, and I found re-watching it this weekend so pleasurable, even more pleasurable than I would have thought. I should also correct the record and say not only did John Swansburg and I have a dialogue about sneakers on the occasion of its 20th anniversary, we commissioned a, like, 12-part special issue marking its <laughs> two-decade-dumb um, that took over the entire website for a couple days while we were uh, off at a slate retreat. So... Um, in addition to having a dialogue, we also had uh, Lo and Lou try to recreate the famous bridge scene where they try to identify the bridge by the sound it would have made had you been trapped in a car's trunk while driving over it. Um, a great Bay, Bay Area geography puzzle. We also got friend of the program, Nick Bertel, um, creator of our theme song and the Succession theme song to write about the hold that the amazing score had over him as a young wannabe composer in his own teens. So um, my love for this film is maximalist and uh, I have no objective ability to assess it as a cultural object because I can repeat every single line. So I will have to leave that task to you guys. Uh, tell me you liked this movie or <laughs> I'm, I'm quitting the show. <laughs> Dana, I'm going to lateral this one to you. I feel like you're avoiding saying what you think about the movie and it makes me afraid that you're going to say something terrible, which would be to me like tearing 
tearing Julia's heart out of her body. I mean, I think that Julia, in part, my love for this movie comes from that special edition that Slate did of it and the ridiculous disproportion between you and Swanberg's love for this movie and its importance in American culture. <laughs> and Julia, of all people, was always the editor at Slate who hated anniversary stories. Like, that's not enough of a peg. We can't talk about something just because it's 20 years old. But when it came to sneakers, she made a very generous exception. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, think totally I had already fair. seen Sneakers at that point, but I rewatched it because of the passion incited by that um, that issue of Slate or ongoing, whatever it was, theme series of articles in Slate, and because of reader responses vertical, to it. The Sneakers Vertical. The Sneakers Vertical. And as you say, Julia, in, your, in part of your correspondence with, with John Swansburg, our former Slate colleague about it, there's a there's a kind of a you know talismanic quality to this movie where the people that love it really really love it and their eyes light up when it's mentioned and they quote from it and it has that cult movie kind of quality although it was a success at the time it was a box office success it's not as if it was exhumed from you know years of unappreciation it made plenty of money above its fairly modest budget I think um, but yeah it does have that quality that it isn't like any other movie right I mean even though it's so uh, citational and referential and it's full of you know references to former Redford movies and kind of old noir classics and it's a heist movie and a spy movie and all of these things that are genre types but it's completely its own thing and I would posit that the true genre that Sneakers belongs to is the hangout movie right I mean the way people always talk mm -hmm. about Howard Hawks films as if you know they're supposedly or ostensibly about uh, some sort of workspace or you know they're war movies or they take place in a newspaper office or whatever but really they're just about these extremely charming charismatic movie stars sort of hanging out and, and bantering mm -hmm. cleverly and that's mm -hmm. a huge part of what this movie is about although cleverly I think makes it sound as if the movie doesn't have heart or ideas and I think it has lots of both. Uh, I am not going to take a polo mallet to this movie. I'm not, I, 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 I'm not going to play that role, but also sincerely because I, I did kind of love it. Kind of love it. I, I fall somewhere in between Julia's reverential awe and the hilarious Vincent Canby pan that was included in our research document. <laughs> Which is itself such a relic. I mean, first of all, if you had asked me, I would have said Vincent Canby died in 1950. I mean, he's just such a voice from the past, the crotchety Olympian authoritarian critic who just dismisses it in three paragraphs, had no fun without realizing the reason he had no fun at a particular movie is because he's no fun. And I... I, I feel like I play that role in contemporary American society, but I refuse to do it for this segment. I, I'll tell you, I'll begin by saying what I loved sincerely, very sincerely about this movie. This is the movie the Mission Impossible movies think they are. Um, I think it is a wonderful screenplay in some respects. It is meticulously, there is nothing slapdash about how the plot fits together. It is a rather considerably large and intricate jigsaw puzzle uh, uh, in which all the pieces integrate pretty seamlessly. And when they, I'll give you just a tiny example that gives nothing away. At a certain moment in the film, someone's wallet needs to sort of spill open, revealing a secret. So instead of just dropping the wallet on the floor clumsily or something, something that is integrated into the comic action of the film as driven by the preposterous 
uh, character of one of the very minor characters comes perfectly into play. You're like, why is this even in the movie? And then all of a sudden you realize there it is. Very, very, very well done. And then the other thing I really loved about this movie is uh, how both backward and forward looking it is at the same time, Julia. Because first of all, it's 1992. So I don't even know if in 1992 I was using email. If I was, it was in the most primitive interface possible. I don't think the World Wide Web or the internet, certainly, I mean, you're four years before Netscape went public, the kind of landmark moment where the internet goes big. So it's um, at the very, very beginning of the of the of the tech revolution and data revolution, about which it's sort of weirdly prescient, especially towards the uh, end, about what the stakes are going to be in converting uh, power into information and information into power. It's macabre and overblown in a wonderful way uh, that befits a Hollywood movie, but in its own way, quite keen and quite right about what's about to happen. And then it's backward looking is that, listen, I, I, I may be slightly subjective here, given when I was born and when I started really seeing movies. But to me, Redford is the last of the great old Hollywood style movie stars. Uh, again, that may be an artifact of the, when I was born, but but to me, Redford really harkens back to the ability of Hollywood to produce really larger than life male sex symbols that uh, united almost everyone in, in their affection for them. And Poitier is, of course, the great uh, color barrier breaking uh, Hollywood actor of the 50s and 60s. And, you know, can be Vincent can be kind of rides them a little bit for being too old for the film. I think it's exactly the opposite. I, I feel like this is a moment when Hollywood is just about to go all in on the franchise model where really the intellectual property is bigger than the star. The star is bigger than the intellectual property here in a way. And they're very, very, very charming. They're a pair of old sneakers. So that's what I love about the movie. And I will stop there. I, I'm struck by one thing that Dana mentioned in her um, encomium, her forced encomium to this movie, because there's no option other than to like it. Um, which is um, just to remark on the unusualness of it. Like, I think to me, that's part of what made me love it so much as a kid. And now it's just such a favorite sweater. I can't see it objectively. But I think the movie is overall a triumph of both pacing and tone. And to me, the tone part is the thing that is the most um, hard to put your finger on. But there's a there's a wryness and a and a jokiness and a lightness uh, to the community to the hangout that that you're referencing. Um, but it's not like a Joss Whedon sardonic eye rolling. There's no. It's very sweet. Right, they're they're sort of wry and light and amused, but they're not cutting and sardonic and um, eye rolling, and that it's just a very unusual tone. Like I'm trying to think of anything else that sort of has that kind of quality of bemusement to it, while also reckoning with um, you know kind of kind of interesting themes. And I think to to the movie is prescient, like the. Bay Area intersection of radical utopian politics and radical utopian kind of technological dreams and how they've and how they've been both aligned and at odds at various points in the last, you know, 50, 60 years is is, you know, it's it's taking that as a really interesting, precise, specific 
well-drawn setting and then putting basically kind of just a ridiculous caper plot in the middle of it. But it's just such a a nicely crafted, nicely paced plot um, with this unusual tone. I mean, am am I wrong? Is this tone a dime a dozen? Yeah, I had had tone in my notes while watching it. And, and And the tone also strikes some strange balance between irreverence and yet not cynicism, right? I mean, this maybe has to do with what you were talking about, about the counterculture ideals that are presented at the beginning. And the movie begins with this flashback of the Robert Redford character and the Ben Kingsley character, who I hope we'll talk about more specifically, um, when they're these youthful idealists played by younger actors who really don't resemble the older versions at all. And this dialectic that's set up between them at the beginning is kind of playful, and yet at the same time what they're messing with, they're kind of trying to hack into various systems to make it look as if, for example, Richard Nixon donated money to the Black Panther and all these kind of prankish things, but they're messing with scary stuff. And, and the movie sort of gets into that as it goes along. And by the end, those two characters, now played by Robert Redford and Ben Kingsley, represent those those two different forces that, that you're talking about. But when we're back with the sneakers themselves, with this gang of ragtag sort of uh, spies for hire, you know, who include the rest of the gang, River Phoenix, Dan Aykroyd, Sidney Poitier, David Strathairn, God Among Men, etc., when we're with them, that spirit of optimism and irreverence kind of rules together. They're kind of the permanent counterculture. And and that's just this kind of beautiful spot to mark out in 1992. You know, Steve, it makes me think of what you were saying about Redford being the last of the movie stars. I feel like there's also a, a last little scrap of sort of 1960s idealism that hasn't gone sour within yeah. that little unit of the sneakers themselves. Right. While being very wise about how, as Julia says, a certain kind of West Coast utopian tech aesthetic as it picks up with a boomer somewhat self-serving boomer sense of mission you know missionary zeal for changing and improving the world it shows how it you know it shows how that can um sour into something you know really genuinely sinister which brings up the kingsley character but one very quick comment i mean i would say tonally what i kept thinking was I may be wrong about this this is a potted theory that maybe deserves to go right out the window but i often think I often sense when I'm in the presence of something that was written by someone whose childhood took took place substantially before television became the dominant medium, was written by someone who didn't grow up maybe as immersed in television. And then I feel like there are other points along the way. There's there's there then there's those people like me who grew up in the seventies, but you only had four channels, so it it didn't permeate your life quite as much as it came to. Then there are people who grow up after cable TV in which there's just an the sense that all of the culture is almost is sort of flooding you whenever you want. Like you can sort of flip on this mammoth 500 channel flood. And then there's of course the uh, internet, which is whenever you want, you can choose anything you want. And I feel like a certain kind of shit eating irony develops along with each one of those phases that, that there was a kind of awe and credulity to people for whom the movies were, you know, because there was no television to compete with them, the moving image was dominantly the f- films. And there's just an, a reverential awe to writing movies that that feature heroes of a certain kind. And as you go through it, irony just begins to take over and take over and take over. And and with compensatory virtues, like incredibly funny, incredibly nimble, incredibly witty, but 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 afraid, I think, of a degree of of awe and reverence or even sincerity. And I thought that this movie was an interesting balance between the two. Dana, I want to bring it back around to something that you indicated, which I think is really true, is this Ben Kingsley character, you know, he's not that, he wouldn't be that out of place in a 
you know, in Ex Machina, the, you know, the Oscar Isaac character, I mean, is amazing piece of avant la lettre or whatever uh, screenwriting. I mean, he really feels like a post Mark Zuckerberg, post social media, social network. You know, he, he he's really a weirdly um, prophetic character, don't you think? Yeah, there's a speech that Julia mentioned that, you know, she and all her fellow sneakerheads know by heart, which is kind of his big villain speech at the end, right? I mean, the moment when he finally... It's about the information, Marty. Right. It's delivered in this strange accent that he has, which is, you know, the British Benton Kingsley, I think, trying to sound like a Brooklyn Jew or something, but he ends up sort of, sort of sounding like a mid-Atlantic, you know, Hollywood classic dude. He's, his, his pronunciation is hilarious anyway. But that big villain speech that he gives in, in, the, in the final confrontation is incredibly prescient. Other bits of the movie are somewhat dated in their kind of war games-like vision of what this worldwide networked security apparatus would be like. But when it comes to Cosmo, who's supposed to be this visionary character, right? He's supposed to be somebody who's outside the system of the state, outside the intelligence system. He's, you know, sort of almost like a Robin Hood kind of figure, but also malevolent. Um, the stuff that he says in that rooftop speech is the stuff that points most closely to what the internet actually did become. And in 1992, in a movie directed by and co-written by the guy who made Field of Dreams, right, which whatever you think of it as a very corny, classic, backward-looking Hollywood movie, uh, it's, it's surprisingly savvy about the future and about where we find ourselves now. And the melancholia of that, right? Because that character is is morally frightening. And the people that he's leaving behind, the people that he's outsmarting, are the ones whose values we want to win. And watching it now, Julia, we know that that person is actually the person who took over the fucking world that we live in. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe that's part of what makes the movie so pleasurable is that it's got an unusual tone and an unusual, like, and I think the score actually would send people to Nick essay about the score which is a really smart it's just it, i feel like i learned something about how to think about scores from the piece um but there's a way that the tone and the writing cause it to have a very unusual tone and feel so you're like what is this i can't quite place this i can't quite get it out of my head uh it's a, a very enjoyable hang with a bunch of deftly drawn uh but not overdrawn characters and then you, it isn't stupid. It's not that smart or it just, it wears its smartness lightly. I think it just wears everything so lightly without being cynical or ironical about it. Like they're like, oh yeah, we just happen to sort of figure out what the big obvious trends of the world are and the way that the world is going and technology corporations that have access to our data will probably be the biggest villains of the future, but we're not going to like grab you by the lapels and make you think we're freaking geniuses for figuring that out. That's just like part of the plot of our caper movie. Like, and then that sort of the lightness with which it wears its correctness are part of what makes it such a beautiful little souffle of a movie. Yeah. I think that's true. It assumes an intelligence and a deafness and intellectual deafness on the part, deftness, not deafness on the part of its audience. And so it makes us feel that we're caught up in the caper too. And I do feel like, movies nowadays, <laughs> movies these days that try to take some sort of spy caper and turn it into a smart allegory about something else tend to not wear that intelligence very lightly and tend to be kind of rubbing it in your face how smart they are. Yeah, it's true. The uh, The aesthetic now is to just overblow it 
by a factor of five. And that certainly is not what, what happened here. Before we close, I mean, this movie made me think of so many things. And Julia, it was such a delight to just like watch it unroll before me again. When I put it on, I was really very cranky and I had a lot to do. And I thought, I've already seen this movie, but I've got to refresh myself on the plot, whatever. And next thing I knew, I was just giggling and cheering along. And I just had to note one moment that in a strange, you know, absolutely impossible way, almost seemed to be prescient of our own social distancing moment right now, which is when everybody, all the sneakers, have to go hide out in Mary McDonald's apartment, the character played by Mary <laughs> McDonald, who's Robert Redford's ex-girlfriend, who's this amazing, I love I love her character, and you're right, Julia, that she gets some of the best deadpan lines in the movie, but one of the things about her is that she's this, you know, extremely organized, professional, kind of glamorous woman who lives alone in this beautiful San Francisco apartment, by the way, one of the great Bay Area movies, I think, of all time, sneakers, and there's just this great moment that all these grubby ragtag hackers invade her apartment with all their stuff because, you know, they've been traced by the bad guys and they have to hang out there and do all their hacking and their, you know, crazy, um, you know, call tracing and everything with their equipment in her pristine San Francisco apartment. And it just made me think of where we are all right now. I mean, I just feel like I'm living with Dan Aykroyd and River Phoenix and David Strathairn in my face all the time <laughs> and just having to deal. And uh, that's just like a fun moment of sort of domestic comedy that's inserted into the middle of the movie. I love that. And I also love um, the notion that this is like one of the very few flaws in the intricate plot, but we're supposed to believe that the police are on to Martin Bishop being Martin Bryce, but they're not going to check his ex-girlfriend's house. Like that's their master plan for where they're going to hide and evade detection. It's like, okay. Um, I like the character of Janik played by Don, a young Donald Logue, who is the um, kind of radical mathematician who has invented the black box that is the MacGuffin of the film and whose um, Czech girlfriend uh, accidentally helps the, the team discover where the black box is because she talks about having left a message on his service pout, poutingly. And um, the team has already described that there is a answering machine on the desk and uh, the David Strathairn character Whistler hears that why would there be an answering machine if you have a message service? Um, so that whole little bit where we very economically meet meet Liz, hear this hilarious mathematical speech about a something or other of Gaussian proportions, <laughs> and then um, find his his love nest and uh, uh, and then the black box just in such rapid succession is is wonderful. All right. I'm going to give my love, I think, to the screenplay, which, despite its hokum, is, you know, think about it this way. You know, if you'd pitch this in 2020, you'd pitch it to Netflix and Amazon and you'd hope, you know, Netflix really. And what you'd hope is for, you know, you, you, you could tell it in four hours, maybe six, but Amazon would want eight or possibly 12. And so every bit of it would be blown and stretched out accordion from here to the moon and back in order to... You know, and this is just old fashioned 90 to, you know, 90 to 120 minute filmmaking. And so you have, Julia, it's, it's, you said the key word, you have to be economical. And it knew, I think, exactly where I think this thing was in development for in excess of 10 years. And um, it was, I think it was, it ended up a lovingly crafted and poured over screenplay. And in, in they, they sanded off the edges, they lopped off the stuff that you didn't need, they allowed Robert Redford to act with his eyes instead of writing, you know, eight scenes of dialogue. Um, um, and uh, that's a bit of a lost art, 
a bit of a lost art now that we're in franchise movie making and Netflix uh, premium TV land. So um, anyway, okay, well, the movie Sneakers, I saw it on Amazon Prime. It should be pretty easy to find, and I hopefully we've pointed you to it. It's nothing if not comforting, right? Yeah, that sweater of a movie, as Julia described it, is kind of perfect. A lovely pilled sweater that you can't wait to get into after work. It is a lovely pilled sweater. Mm-hmm. There you go, Sneakers. All right, moving on. All right, Jody, you're going to stick around and endorse, I take it? Yes, I am. All right, let's start with you. What do you have? I'm going to do two because I don't get to endorse much these days, so why not? I'm going to go for it. Um, First of all, since we're talking about um, untimely deaths, or maybe in this case, just deaths of of great musical figures, um, be remiss if I didn't mention Bill Withers, another great songwriter, supremely great songwriter, and, and, and of course, singer, um, the 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 kind of soul what can you call him like genre strat- straddling soul singer who had blues and folk and jazz and all kinds of funk uh up in his music um he's best known of course for some just like absolutely immortal songs that are in his songbook uh, ain't no sunshine use me lean on me grandma's hands um mm. lovely, lovely day. day yeah just the two of us we we could go on listing these um but just to say like he was another songwriter who is who is who is a great great storyteller and a really his a really like warm personality that came through in his music i mean a song like grandma's hands is is like that's that's an amazingly economical piece of storytelling i mean he really is it's weird but he's of a piece with adam schlesinger in that respect but his best known songs come from his first three albums um just as i am which is 1971 album still bill 1972 and then this live at carnegie hall album which is one of the great live records um but i wanted to like just point listeners towards some of his lesser known records maybe you should check out um the album naked and warm which is kind of a weirder funk kind of almost fusion jazz singer songwritery record from the mid seventies. Um, that, um, is yeah, a great record. There's also an album of his called adjustments. Um, and, and basically Bill Withers whole discography, um, rewards, um, deep listening. So, so do yourself a favor and, and, and check out Bill Withers and yeah, rest in peace. And then just the quickest word, um, just because I feel like this is like public service. My favorite writer is, is PG Woodhouse, the, the, the great English comic novelist, like the greatest comic writer of all time, no doubt. Um, in fact, like when I was first discovering him, I think I endorsed him on the Gab Fest like 10, 12 years ago when I was first discovering his books. And I, and I was so, such a, um, such a neophyte and such a, such a fucking Philistine that I called him Wodehouse. That's so that to my eternal shame, I think that's like preserved on wax somewhere. And like, <laughs> I wish that I hope I would that the fucking Gabfest archives be obliterated at least that one moment of that one episode. But I stand by Wodehouse. I've since read like, like maybe 80 of his novels. But the reason I'm endorsing him now is like in this insanely trying time of, you know, when we're all absolutely freaked out and petrified and enduring great hardship of varying degrees and uh, feeling fearful, et cetera. Like Woodhouse is my comfort food because 
his world is a world that like admits no dark shadows. It's just all like sunshine and hilarity and brilliance and genius. And the best way I know to experience his books, even more than reading them, is listening to the audiobook versions of them that are narrated by this guy named Jonathan Sissel, who's just an incredible master of, of audio narration. So go to Audible or whatever other service you use to get audiobooks and check out Jonathan Sissel's versions of like maybe some classics like Uncle Fred in the Springtime or uh, The Code of the Worcesters or Jeeves in the Feudal Spirit or Uncle Dynamite, whatever. You know, all, basically everything that, that Woodhouse wrote between like 1930 and 1960 is gold and the rest of it is like very close. But that's, that's those 30 years are the, that's the, that's the, the sweet spot period. So. <laughs> and getting a 30 year sweet spot in your writing career is a pretty good deal. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, he wrote, he wrote, you know, he wrote for many decades and like what his his bibliography is like 119 novels or something like that and those are the only I think he also wrote some that were pseudonymous, so yeah. That's astonishing. Oh man, I love it. I love yeah. an audiobook recommendation that comes with the perfect reader as well. And I'm such a Woodhouse fan, although I haven't read him probably in like 25 years. So that's a great okay, one. Okay, Dana, do, is it okay if we break form here and I endorse next and you go last? Because mine, it turns out, flows pretty directly out of a lot of what Jody just said. Yeah, yeah. Go with the okay, flow. Okay, so... First of all, for the last 12 years, not coincidentally, I've pronounced it Wodehouse. Oh, yeah. yeah. That makes me feel better. That makes me... And don't, don't you have a higher degree, It does, does not, it does not <laughs> make me feel better, but I, if it makes you feel better, it makes me feel... Actually, it's zero sum. It makes me feel worse. But um, but nonetheless, you've pushed Wodehouse, Woodhouse, whatever his name is, on me for, for that period of time. And I, I haven't resisted for any reason other than narrow bandwidth and you know, solipsism, but I, I will now do it, but I need you to do something too. Okay. Now, I know this is a windy way to get there, but a number of years ago, Slate had the bright idea of why do we wait until someone dies in order to appreciate them? I mean, there's this, this. I think it's inevitable that there's a certain outpouring of almost, it's almost as if your unconscious opens up and you realize what someone really meant to you, what their work meant to you when they're gone. And that I think is inevitable. It's very hard to bypass that or short, short, short circuit it. But Slate tried, to their credit, to pick a few people for whom people feel enormous gratitude in order to, in order to really celebrate them while they were still alive. So in the spirit of both of those things, of both me agreeing finally to read Woodhouse, and in the spirit of talking about someone while they're alive, and um, with Adam uh, Schlesinger's music in mind, I think the most underrated living songwriter is this guy, uh, Marty Donald, who was the principal songwriter for the Australian band, The Lucksmiths. And here's what I'm going to do, okay? Because I think a lot of what we said about Adam can be said about Marty, who we were very lucky to meet and uh, have dinner with when we were down in Melbourne. I'm going to put together, a, let's say, between 15 and 30, probably closer to 15 song playlist, post it publicly on Spotify. And Jody, there's a certain kind of songwriter that I know you really love. Economical, brill building, you know, chimey, rhymey, clever, uh, melodic um, songwriter. And I think that he's that kind of a songwriter. I actually think you might care about this music. And I, oh man, he's just in my all time underrated pantheon. I listened to the 10 to 20 of his best songs, and he wrote 100 great songs, but I mean, that the, the t 10 to 20 best ones I just think are so lovely and they're clever they're clever 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 songwriting and they they were 
indie big down in Australia and they were indie small in the United States, which I think frustrated them eventually, but they put together a pretty big discography. So I am going to make my endorsement fully public this week. I'd love it if our listeners checked it out because this person deserves to be better known. And uh, Jody, I'd love your imprimatur on uh, on this, but you should be frank. But um, does that sound like a deal? No, that sounds like it's such a deal. I've, I've never heard of Marty Donald or the Luxmiths, but I'm I'm so psyched to check it out. Okay, cool. And you just have to be honest. That's I know you will be. Are you kidding me? For sure. <laughs> okay, good. Steve, you're going to send me that playlist. I'm going to make that playlist public. I'm going to make that playlist. Every right. person in the world can listen to it, including Harvey Weinstein. The whole no one's no one's interdicted. But um, Julia, what do you have? I am heartbroken to have had to miss the Adam Schlesinger segment today for time reasons, uh, because I'm an enormous fan of his work. And I think I particularly am a fan of his work for television. I loved Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I think the songs on that show were just extraordinary pieces of musical theater captured for TV. Um, the the Let's Generalize About Men song is just a great send-up of... Um, exactly what I don't like about certain aspects of modern feminism while still being a feminist anthem. Great song. But my endorsement for the week is actually a repeat endorsement. I've definitely endorsed this before, but one of the many great things that Adam Schlesinger did in his career uh, was work on the Colbert Christmas special with John Legend. And for that special, he co-wrote a number of really wonderful songs. And the best and funniest of them all is the song Nutmeg, which is like a send-up of a 70s-style sex anthem all about how uh, John Legend wants to be the nutmeg in your eggnog, uh, but all of that as a metaphor for wanting to sex you up. And it is the definitely the funniest spice-oriented sex ode I've ever heard, but it's also just a great <laughs> song. And like, I, we are incapable of cooking anything with nutmeg in it in my house without breaking <laughs> into uh, the hilarious lines about wanting to nog that egg and <laughs> all the rest. So a very, very, very silly um, favorite from a, a really, really wonderful talent. But uh, in addition to all the other great things which uh, Jody and Dana and Steve have no doubt discussed, I send you to Nutmeg. And now's the magic moment in our program in which I say Dana. Okay. Uh, an endorsement for this week is tough because as Steve and I were discussing off mic earlier, neither of us felt any joy. <laughs> so we had trouble digging up what sort of uh, cultural artifact to, we could produce to bring other people joy. But I will say that, like Jody, I have not been watching much TV. I find that if I have any time or desire to escape into anything, I would rather have it be a movie than TV. And maybe that's just always been my sort of preference, more of a movie than TV person. But the one TV show that I watch every week with my man, and we are so happy that it's back, is Better Call Saul. I know you're a fan too, right, Stephen? Uh, that's another one with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend I'm going to have to catch up on. What I've seen, oh but what I've seen, right, I love. All right, get out of here. Get out of here. Better Call Saul is the best thing on TV. I'm so happy it's back. And so I'm not endorsing the show exactly because we've already talked many times here about um, how Julie and I are giant fans of Better Call Saul. But an episode of a podcast on The Ringer, a podcast I don't usually listen to called The Watch, uh, which is just about TV. And the second half of the podcast The Watch last week, the first half is interesting too. It's a discussion of the coronavirus crisis and how that's affecting television production. Totally worth listening to. But if you skip to around the 40-minute point, 
There's an interview with Ray Seahorn, who, if you watch Better Call Saul, you know plays Kim Wexler, probably the best character on television right now. And uh, every time I watch that show every week, I wish that there was a spinoff just about Kim Wexler or some sort of 500-page fanfic tome about Kim Wexler that I could read. She's one of those characters who seems to just be the tip of the iceberg, and there's so much beneath it. She's a fantastic actress, Ray Seahorn, who plays her. And, um, and so you can listen for 40 minutes to her talking about her character, the show, the Better Call Saul universe, what it's like to work on that show. And if you're somebody who, like me, loves behind the scenes, you know, I love a podcast like the one June Thomas used to do on The Americans that just talks to the creators and talks about how the show got put together, you know, musically in terms of editing and all of that. Um, she really gets into that. She talks about acting process, you know, acting for TV, just fascinating interview with a really intelligent woman. So interview with Rhea Seahorn on the latest episode of The Watch, and that's on TheRinger.com. Marvelous. All right. Well, um, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. And thanks, Jody. That was great. Thanks, May. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And I'll say it every week because I really mean it. We've gotten great. We got great email this week. Email us at culturefest at slate.com. We will get back to you. Nudge us if we don't. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Jody Rosen, Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and Jen Ag, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Please stay safe, and we will see you soon. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.